I can still remember the day that Aaron and I were sitting there and you know, he had, he had run functional connectivity with some of these lesion locations and we saw, boom, this anti-correlation to the extra-stride visual cortex. Mm. The exact spot of the brain involved in visual imagery sure. just popped out. <laughs> Moments where, you know, I, I kind of couldn't believe that it was working, mm. right? Yeah. You know, like when Ryan Darby first showed that lesions that cause delusions of familiarity, right, mm. are connected to the familiarity detector, and they're all connected to our reality monitor. And, yeah. and like all of a sudden it was like, oh, for, for a century people have hypothesized this is a dual hit syndrome. There's been a lot of very, very um, exciting moments as you know, we saw different Legion network mapping results and kind of you know, put our hands by it and said, wow, <laughs> that's really cool. Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Mike Fox is the director of the Center for Brain Circuit Therapeutics, where he is also the Raymond D. Adams Distinguished Chair in Neurology at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. A few years back when Mike moved from the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to the Brigham, the reason was to create exactly this Center for Brain Circuit Therapeutics, where the idea was to have colleagues from neurosurgery, neurology, psychiatry, and neuroradiology all under one roof to work together and solve problems of neuromodulation in all types of brain disorders. I should probably mention that Mike recruited me to the center last year, so he is my boss and um, dear friend and dear colleague and also one of my most important mentors. I owe a lot to him and have learned so much from him. So that's why I'm super excited to share this conversation I had with him about his work in resting state connectivity in the earlier phases, but more and more so on brain mapping using a connectome. In 2016, when I was a postdoc in Mike's lab, he once phrased it, you know, we have the connectome now, so we have the map, but where do we go with it? And I think Mike is one of the few people that really has solved this question, especially with the aim of clinical translation, using the connectome to map functions and symptoms to brain networks with the aim of translation. He uses causal sources of inference, for example, brain lesions, TMS stimulation sites, or DBS electrode placements, to look at which networks map to which symptoms or functions in the brain. The aim here is to use these causal sources of information to create novel neuromodulation targets, both for invasive and also non-invasive neuromodulation. Our conversation was enriched by guest questions of former and present colleagues that have worked with Mike, such as Shan Siddiqui, Aaron Bose, Michael Ferguson, Dan Korb, and Fred Shaper. And I'm super excited to be part of this community of brilliant minds that trained under Mike and many of which have now begun to start their own labs worldwide in different places such as Utah or Finland or Germany. This is a growing community of people that are using these network mapping techniques to find out which neuromodulation targets are suitable to treat which symptom in the brain. So for me, Mike is really one of these very stimulating brains, and I'm pretty sure you're gonna enjoy this conversation I had with him. Thanks for tuning in, Stimulating Brains. Okay, Mike, um, thanks so much for doing this. Um, as you know, to break the ice before we get into science, I always ask about hobbies. So um, what do you do when not involved in science? 
I'm uh, not involved in science. Well, I, I like recruiting very talented faculty members to my center. I don't know if that counts as a scientific hobby or not. It's still work. No, no. no as as yeah. you know, I, I, I live on a lake. Um, absolutely love the outdoors. So paddleboarding, kayaking, um, playing with my kids either on the lake or in the pool. Um, but but no, my, my big pastime right now is being a dad. And, um, and then if I can be a dad outdoors, even better. Great. I remember you, you, you once mentioned that as a kid you would go outdoors and f find fish in the lakes, put them into a, your aquarium, and you, you were always an outdoor person, right? I yeah, well, think. not just fish. It's whatever I could catch. Crawdads, okay. <laughs> turtles, frogs. <laughs> sounds, uh, sounds I grew good. up in the woods, and um, the more I can get back to being in the woods, um, and that, now that I have a seven- and a nine-year-old, I have an excuse for catching crawdads and yeah. fish and turtles. And, uh, <laughs> sounds great. Sounds great. So, so going into your career, science and medicine, um, who were key mentors and turning points? Yeah, so certainly the, the, you know, the dominant was my, my PhD mentor, Mark Rakel. Um, he was my first you know, scientific father and just learned an, a massive amount from him. Obviously, I learned a lot about brain imaging um, and, and just how to do science and write papers. And, but, but more, he continues to be my role model for... Uh, you know, how you run a lab, how you run a center, um, you know, just you know, politically how you solve problems amongst different people in the lab. And, uh, and I, I still you know, remember going to a conference, um, and, and anytime Mark Rako goes to a conference, it's, um, it is, he's, he's like, I guess now the grandfather, yeah. right? Wa walking through these imaging conferences where it, it's not just what he did with his own career, it's what all of his students did. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I'd say that's my model for where I want to go. And uh, you, you train the best people, and um, that allows you to, one, um, let go of things and pivot and focus on something new. Yeah. So that's a real important lesson that he taught me. And then, two, it's, it's you know, you, you see how science unfolds and how your efforts become multiplicative as people go off and, and do their own thing. And, and for me, that... that it was so salient, you know, watching him walk through this conference that that stuck with me ever since, and and it continues to be my career goal. So essentially, creating mini mics um, that would then pivot off and do their own thing. No, no, no. That's the whole point. Is is that if it's a bunch of mini mics and you failed, okay. right? It can't be mini mics. It's got to be um, you know people that think differently than you. They they learn something from you, sure. right? You had an influence on them, but they they think differently. They do different things. Um, they they do things that you never would have thought to do. Right, yeah. and so they're not many mics. They're they're better than many mics in important ways, and that's how how you actually have influence on a field. Um, so Mark Regal taught me all that, and then obviously Alvaro Pascalione, my um, my postdoctoral mentor, really got me laser focused on translation, and yeah. and always thinking about all right, cool science is cool science, but but what do you do with it? How do you take that science and translate that into, you know, in in the case of Alvaro, a neuromodulation intervention. Yeah. Um, and so that obviously had a huge effect on, on how I think about things and, and how you run a center and how you build a center focused on that goal. Cool. And do you, do you continue contact with both of them? I'm, I, 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 I do. Yeah, yeah okay. it's very important to me. I think you know, a, a good mentor is, is a mentor forever, and they continue to have things that they can teach you. Yeah, sounds great. So I will start with the first guest question um, by Shan Siddiqui uh, about that um, first part of your professional life. Hey, Sean Siddiqui here. So I've got two questions for this interview. First of all, uh, where do you think you'd be right now if uh, if you'd never gone to medical school or grad school and you decided to continue being an engineer? Uh, <laughs> what direction do you think your career would have gone? 
Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I um, so at the time that I decided to um, give up electrical engineering and go to medical school, I did have a nice job offer on the table where I had worked for Procter and Gamble for a couple of oh. summers, and um, I did not fit in with the corporate culture at, okay. at PNG. And so uh, their offer to me was, hey, we're, we're, we're launching this new initiative where we're going to take all the crazy people and stick them together in a building and, and hope they come up with creative things. And your job as the electrical engineer will be figuring out, can you manufacture any of these crazy things that people come up with? So every week you're going to be trying to build a new assembly line with a bunch of robotic arms doing different things. And, and so that's probably the job that I would have taken if mm -hmm. I had not gone to medical school. Now, would I have stuck with that? Would I keep doing it? Would I have gotten bored of making diaper machines at some point? I, I don't know. Um, but that was um, the job I probably would have taken if I said no to medical school. Okay, sounds great. And I think you, you did then go to an MD-PhD program in WashU and you once said something like, it's a good program for people that can't decide yet. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. No, it was true. I, I was very uh, attracted to medical school. I was also very attracted to graduate school. I also liked being an engineer, um, but I, I think the MD-PhD, it, it, it gave me, a, at least me, I, I'm sure there are people out there that know what they want to do, um, but it gave me a low-risk way to explore both options and figuring that, all right, I'll, I'll push the decision down the line to some point and decide if I actually want to be a doctor or be a scientist. Sounds great. Sounds great. So, so um, your earlier work uh, with Mike Reichel that you just mentioned focused on, um, I think, a lot of things, but also anti-correlated networks in the human brain. So you were a pioneer in using and applying resting state functional connectivity, also developing it um, in the brain. Maybe we should start by briefly mentioning what resting state fMRI is, opposed to ta task-based fMRI. Yeah, sure. So you know, task-based fMRI is is you know what a lot of people. <laughs> I guess used to think of the standard fMRI. I guess yeah. since it's become pretty popular, but um, you can think of the standard preoperative mapping paradigm, where you put somebody in a scanner, you have them tap their fingers, and you see what activates in response to the finger tapping, yeah. and that identifies brain regions that activate during a certain task. And people use this task-based imaging for the early PET studies, for the early fMRI studies, yeah. and it was mapping out, you know, what goes up when you do a particular task function, and then. Um, resting state was the idea that you could put someone in an fMRI scanner, not have them do any specific task, right? just rest quietly in the scanner and try not to fall asleep, although it turns out that you can still see spontaneous activity when people are asleep or even under anesthesia. Um, but you just look at these spontaneous fluctuations in the fMRI signal, and those are temporally correlated within um, connected brain regions and, and brain networks. And so it gave us a new way to map out not what makes this brain region go up or what activates this brain region, yeah. but what is the functional relationship between different brain regions. And that was heavily influenced, or at least it was informative to have had, um, which Mike Reichel worked before that, right? I think he used, would you say so? Or? So it, it, it was motivated by a couple different things. One okay. was just uh, a, a you know, observation by Bharat Biswal way back in 1995, who just noticed, hey, gee, you know, there's a lot of spontaneous activity in this fMRI signal. Oh, look, it seems to be correlated between the left and right motor cortex, yeah. right? He, it was just something he saw, and it was an observation that, that, that sat out there for people to, to capitalize on, and eventually they did, and, and yeah. did big time. But I, 
I think for, for Mark, he came at it from a slightly different perspective. So, you know, Barat Biswal's finding had been sitting around for 10 years before, you know, I or Mark Rakel ever got involved in the field. And I think what piqued Mark's interest was, was two things. One is uh, Mike Gracious published a very nice resting state fMRI study showing the default mode network. And the reason that that really raised our eyebrows is one, we were interested in this network, but then two, it was in multiple different vascular distributions. So there was no way that that could have emerged through, you know, vasomotion or respiration mm -hmm. or cardiac pulsations or a lot of the, the um, artifact that people were worried about following the Biswall paper. Yeah. Um, so, so the Grecius paper got us really interested. And then Mark had always come at the brain from a energetics and, and pet motivated perspective, which is um, what we see is that the brain is extremely active at rest. Yeah. And that when you actually do a task, you get this itty bitty increase mm -hmm. above and beyond this massive um, amount of, of ongoing resting activity. Yeah. And for Mark, his first insight in that was this default mode network, you know, areas that go down when you do a task, right? Well, okay, if there's areas going down when they do a task, then they must be doing something at rest, yeah. right? And so then when this resting state of MRI came around, that was a, another reason to get interested in it, is this could be a window into the brain's enormous ongoing resting energy expenditure that, that you could see with, with these PET scans, and you could yeah. see based on regions that went down uh, when you did a task. So, so you're saying with PET, you wouldn't be able to see that the default mode goes up during... Could, could you do that? Like, if you, yeah, in theory, you could, you could probably. You, but, you could, yeah. But, but, it's, but it's, it's easier with fMRI. Right. Like, yeah. And then, you know, with PET, you have the, you know, the resting FDG scan. So just what, yeah. what brain regions are consuming the greatest amount of glucose at rest. Yeah. Right. So, so the FDG PET, you know, was a resting state yeah. scan. Yeah. Right. Um, before they really had task activation mapping. Makes sense. Super cool. So, so, and then. Your like landmark paper in PNAS from 2005, it was cited, I think, over 8,000 8, times by now. Um, <laughs> what did you find there, and why was it so important? That was a, so first off, at least a third of those citations are saying that the paper's wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> if, you do, if you do a controversial paper, like, you, know, you can accumulate citations. But I, you know, I think most of the, the citations are um, just... That was the first paper where we kind of, if you will, put, put together the... The, the process processing recipe for, for cleaning up resting state fMRI signals. So, so I mentioned, you know, Barab Biswa had a beautiful paper, Mike Gracious had a beautiful paper, and then when we tried to do it at WashU, we had a lot of trouble. Okay. Um, in fact, I wasn't the first grad student that they assigned to the project. They had tried multiple times before I tried. And, and the problem was is that the, the resting state signal does have neural activity in it, but it has those cardiac pulsations, respiratory artifact, movement artifact, and yeah. And how you get rid of that wasn't trivial. And so for us, we had some resting state data. And it, was, it was trial and error over the course of about a year and a half where, you know, my sitting down every night with Avi Snyder, trying different things, trying different algorithms, trying different combinations of regressing out different signals. Yeah. Um, and then finally, we kind of developed a recipe that, that worked. And all of a sudden, these maps started popping out that just looked way cleaner than anything mm. we had seen before. Um, and so I think a lot of the citations of that paper are, you know, that process of, you know, regressing out the, the motion parameters, the temporal filtering, yeah. you know, the, the global signal regression, um, but, but regressing out these, these, these covariates kind of led to a way to clean up the fMRI signal. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that's part of it, is people just cite as a generic resting state fMRI paper. 
And then the other observation was this idea of the, the push-pull networks, these anti-correlations. Um, and, you know, yes, I am. Uh, I, I do realize anti-correlation is not a word. <laughs> but we had multiple versions of the paper. We had the task-positive network and then the task-negative network. Mm -hmm. And we actually had a version where it was the task-positive network, task-negative network, and negative correlations. And it was just unreadable, I see. right? Okay. Because the positive negative was meaning multiple different things in different places. And so anti-correlation was stuck in there just to make the paper more readable. More readable. Okay. Um, but, but for us, I, I think it was exciting because it, um, it suggests that these resting state fMRI um, maps told us something more than just what is anatomically connected. Yeah. It was telling us something about the, the polysynaptic functional relationships between regions. And over and over again with TASC, you saw that a certain set of regions went up, a different set of regions went down. And the idea that that functional relationship that we saw over and over again in different TASC paradigms was there represented intrinsically in the pattern of the ongoing spontaneous activity, it really made us think differently about what these maps were showing us yeah. and what the maps are capable of telling us. Yeah. And I, I would still say that, that you know, sometimes there's criticism that fMRI hasn't taught us much about the brain yet, but, but I think that is one key thing, that the whole organizational architecture that these massive networks ramp up and down and seem to stop each other, right? When once active, it, it might have an intrinsic function of tuning down the other one? Or I, I think that's, that's one possible interpretation okay. of the data, yeah. but that's not proven yet. You know, I, yeah. I, there's not you know, direct inhibitory connections between, sure. you know, these two two circuits. And so I, I think all the fMRI signal really tells us is that when this one goes up, this one tends to go down. Yeah. But that doesn't tell us the mechanism. It doesn't tell us how that, that happens. Sense. It doesn't tell us why that happens. Yeah. Um, but but it, it's, it, I do think it is helpful for mapping out the topography. It tells us where it happens. Yeah. Sounds great. Do you want to briefly tap into the global signal regression debate, or shall we skip that? Um, well, the short answer is no. <laughs> I, I, but, but I think it's, it's for, for the listeners, I, I think it is useful as an example where everyone has to figure out what their balance is going to be between digging into the methods and just taking a method and running with it. And, and actually, before we ever published that paper, we had the follow-up paper on global signal regression fully written, right? We knew that it was an issue. We knew that it was a confound, and it was actually part of the original paper. The problem was is it was going into a problem or a question that nobody was even asking. Yeah, sure. And it's very hard to answer a question that no one's asked yet. Yeah. And so Mark's advice, and it, it was, I think, accurate, was, you know, let's just publish the paper, Someone will then ask the question. Mm -hmm. In fact, we would oftentimes talk about this issue in, in talks. And so then people started asking the question. Then we were ready with a follow-up paper to say, hey, here's our best set of analyses that, that go after, is this a real artifact or is it, is it something meaningful yeah. um, biologically? Um, and then the field kind of did its own thing where lots of different very smart people went after this. Is there a better replacement for global signal regression? Is it a confound? Is it a not confound? And I'm really glad that people dug into it um, but it became such a debated methodological step that at one point people were getting their papers rejected mm -hmm. solely because they either did this processing step or didn't do the processing yeah. step. And th that was a very frustrating period of time. Um, and actually, um, uh, Kevin Murphy and I got together and wrote this you know, opinion piece on just trying to get a consensus of, yeah. hey, actually, we pretty much agree on everything here. These yeah. are just different ways to look at the data that are useful in different circumstances. 
and you know the analogy for neurologists I always can give is nobody fights over how you montage the EEG. Yeah. Right. There are different ways to look at that EEG signal. The right way to look at it is the way that shows you the seizure. Sure. <laughs> it's the same thing with resting state fMRI. Yeah. But but I, I I do think that it's great that there are people out there that really dig hardcore into the methods, and that's how we make the methods better and refine them better over time. That being said, if the whole field did that, then we would never be able to move forward and use any method for, for something useful. Yeah. So I think there's a balance there with any methodological debate. Sounds great. So, so, so but one, one thing I think um, that, that will be important for the next guest questions uh, is, is, is that these anti-correlations or n you know, negative associations, negative functional connectivity values might tend to increase a bit if you do this global signal regression step. So it was a bit up for debate, you know, are these real, are these physiologic and so on. So, so I'm going to play two questions because they're quite similar and you can maybe answer them together. So first is by Aaron Bowes from Utah. What do you think is the significance of anti-correlated networks in understanding human brain function? And then the, the second one is from Michael Ferguson. Hey Mike, it's Michael Ferguson. My question for you is, what finally convinced you that anti-correlated activity was a real physiological principle? <laughs> and how did you feel? <laughs> All right. Um, so, so both great questions. And so, uh, you know, there's lots of ways I can answer Michael Ferguson's question. Yeah. And there's a development. We, we did a lot of analyses and, you know, we've published on a lot of them of, of different ways to look at the data and simulate the data and cut up the brain and, you know, trying to convince ourselves that it's not all artifact, right? Do anti-correlations get a little stronger with global... Yeah, they definitely do. Um, and, and so it's a question of degree. But but to link the two questions very nicely, I'd say one of the, the best pieces of evidence that convinced me that the anti-correlations were real is when Aaron Bowes um, developed lesion network mapping. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I still remember the day where Aaron and I were sitting there and Aaron was trying to understand lesions that cause visual hallucinations. Yeah. And he had um, you know, put together lots of cases of patients with uh, peduncular hallucinosis, so a stroke in the brainstem or thalamus that ended up having uh, visual hallucinations. And it was very hard to understand how a stroke in these non-visual parts of the brain could result in hallucinations. And there, you know, for a century, had been this long-standing theory of, of calling them release hallucinations, the idea that somehow the lesion is releasing activity in areas of the brain that are involved in visual imagery, yeah. and that, that leads to hallucinations. And I can still remember the day that Aaron and I were sitting there, and you know, he, had, he had run functional connectivity with some of these lesion locations, and we saw, boom, this anti-correlation to the extra-stride visual cortex, mm. the exact spot of the brain involved in visual imagery sure. just popped out. Yeah. Right? And, and it just, it made so much sense with so many long-staring theories of where these hallucinations must be coming from, yeah. um, that, that that kind of, you know, that really hit me, right? That, that without these anti-correlations, there was no way to link up these lesion locations mm -hmm. with the part of the brain that we were pretty sure was involved in visual imagery. Yeah. Um, and then there's been That's lots great. of other pieces since that time. Yeah. But, but I think we had, yeah. to, we had to switch to causal sources of information. So yeah. there's been you know, lesion data that convinced me that there might be something there. There's been TMS and DBS data that's convinced me that there might be something there. But, but in all these cases, there's not a good way to link a, a, a causal site, a, a site of brain stimulation or a lesion site, 
with its effects on symptoms um, without taking into account the anti-correlations. Yeah. Sounds great. So, so we will, of course, dive into lesion network mapping. I, I wanted to briefly, maybe, um, before we go into that, um, ask you, so after your MD-PhD at WashU, you completed your residency in neurology at MGH, so Mass General Hospital. And I, I remember you recollecting a typical Boston residency um, anecdote once where on a snowy day one would see medical residents on their skis coming down Beacon Hill to be punctual for rounds at MGH in the morning. So I just thought to pick your brain because I rarely ask you that, you know, um, any anecdotes from your residency time at MGH that you wanted to share? <laughs> now we can skip to... Oh no, to so many, but uh, <laughs> I got to pick a politically correct one. <laughs> um, you know, sure. I'll, I'll, I, so one of the ones that, that I'll share is, uh, it comes from um, when I was on the wards, uh, my attending was Jeremy Schmaman at MGH. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, brilliant uh, clinician and, and researcher. And, um, and I still remember we had seen a stroke in the emergency room. Uh, it was somebody with a, a thalamic lesion, as I recall. And, you know, as a neurologist, you go there, you do all your testing, it takes you... 20 minutes or 40 minutes, depending on how comprehensive you want to be, to figure out, do they have a stroke? Where might the stroke be? Yeah. As you're waiting for the imaging to be collected. And I still remember, uh, uh, you know, Jeremy Schmaman comes down, you know, pulls back the curtain, walks in, introduces himself. Hi, I'm Dr. Schmaman. Uh, the patient reaches out, you know, shakes his hand, introduces yeah. himself, and he turns around and leaves the room. And, okay. and <laughs> we're all kind of looking, like, well, wh wh where are you going, right? He's like, oh, he's got a lesion in his left thalamus. It's a clumsy hand dysarthria syndrome. Huh. And, and literally within, <laughs> you know, five or ten seconds, he had, he had diagnosed, you know, the, the syndrome, the exact location of the lesion, the patient's entire problem. And it just kind of blew me away of, wow, if I could ever be a neurologist like mm -hmm. that, right? Um, so that's just one anecdote that, that, that that's great, yeah. I, I, I remember. Remind, but reminds me of the, the um, video challenges they sometimes have at the Movement Disorders Congress where, you know, Sometimes you see these cases where patients with movement disorders were not diagnosed for 10 years, but it takes one guy looking at the video for 20 seconds and they know what it is, right? So, so that is sometimes super impressive for clinical practice. I totally agree. So um, great. Uh, after residency, you joined the BIDMC as an instructor, and um, there, of course, Avro Pasqualeone was your postdoc men mentor, and um, then one key method I think you developed in that time is called lesion network mapping and um, you, you already tapped into it just now but could you summarize a bit more generally what it is what the idea is about yeah no, and I guess I, I just first want to mention you know the before lesion network mapping actually was was this idea of TMS network mapping so okay. I went over to Beth Israel uh, to work with and learn from Alvaro with the idea that, that you know, with functional connectivity coming out of WashU, we had this tool um, for mapping out how different brain areas were related to one another. Yeah. And, you know, I was definitely a tool builder in search of an app. Yeah. Um, and so I spent my entire neurology residency thinking through, okay, we've got this great imaging technique that can tell us how different brain re regions are related to one another. Where is that going to be useful? Yeah. And at the time, one of the big clinical problems was where do you hold a TMS coil to help something like depression. Yeah. And there was evidence that TMS was working. Alvaro had done great work, you know, along with Mark George and many others, showing that TMS could help depression, but it was um, administered using scalp measurements. And we said, all right, well, we know that TMS is having an effect, not just the stem site, but everything connected to that stem site. Mm -hmm. and, and it was kind of this perfect combination of, hey, I know a little bit about 
resting state functional connectivity, you know a lot about TMS. Yeah. Let's get together and see if this you know, brain connectivity information can be useful for improving TMS therapy. So that was that was actually the reason I went to Beth Israel. Makes sense, yeah, um, absolutely. And, and, and the reason I, I, I highlight that is because the lesion network mapping emerged fully from, um, you know, patient motivation and, and you know, some degree of serendipity, right? Where, um, you know, Aaron Bowes also came over to Beth Israel as a fellow to work with Alvaro and, and work with me, um, again, for TMS network mapping, right? Yeah. How do we combine brain connectivity to improve TMS therapies? So, so for maybe let's briefly talk about TMS network mapping yeah. before we go, go into the lesions. So, 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 was, so the idea there was that you want to hold the coil over a spot that's anticorrelated again to the subgenual, and I think that's your 2012 biopsych paper. Was that motivated by the DBS trials of um, subgenual or? 100%, okay. yeah. Yeah, so I mentioned we had a tool for figuring yeah. out how different brain regions were related to one another. We had a clinical problem of where do we hold our TMS coil yeah. to try and improve depression. Um, but then we needed a, a, another angle on it, another hook. And so um, Helen Mayberg's work um, showing how critical this limbic region, you know, the subcolossal cingulate was to depression, was very influential. And at the yeah. time, you know, she had recently published her papers, you know, motivating implantation of DBS electrodes into that site. And and I, I think you're hitting on something that is an important trend or, or focus of mine, which is how do you relate these different neuromodulation interventions to one another? I said, all right, it can't be a coincidence that we have a DBS target for depression and we have a TMS target for depression and you can administer neuromodulation to either of these targets and make depression better, they gotta be related to one yeah. another. Um, and so it was Helen's work that motivated us to say, all right, we think the subcolossal cingulate's important for depression. We know that somewhere in the left prefrontal cortex is important for depression. How do they line up? Yeah. And so the 2012 paper was just a test of that hypothesis of can we look at connectivity with this critical limbic region and does that help identify topography in the frontal cortex that lines up with different TMS sites that seem like they're working or not working? Super cool. And it, it seemed to work. And then I think one other landmark paper was your 2014 paper in PNAS where you showed, again, more conceptually, but across, I think, 10 or 12 diseases that the DBS sites and TMS sites would also, again, line up in the same way, right? So that is another really cool paper. Do you want to briefly... Yeah, it was, it was just the same idea, yeah. um, and and again, it was I, I had the privilege of you know talking to Alvaro Pascalione every day, and then he introduced me to Andreas Lozano, um, one of the world's experts in DBS, and and I had you know training in movement disorders and did DBS every day for Parkinson's disease, and so it was just this this idea that you know we have DBS therapies that are effective for certain symptoms, we have TMS therapies that are effective for certain symptoms, and we've got a an imaging tool that can link up different regions yeah. into networks. And can we test the hypothesis that our DBS sites that are working and our TMS sites that are working are part of the same network? Yeah. And if, if, if that's true, then maybe we need to be thinking about our targets for neuromodulation as, as brain network or brain circuit targets that are independent of whether you're targeting a subcortical node with DBS or a cortical node with TMS. Yeah. In the end, it's a circuit target. So it was, it was just, it was more of an idea paper. In fact, we, we originally tried to publish that paper as just a perspective, right? Yeah. As a hypothesis or sure. an idea. And it got rejected everywhere. And so then we, we tried to turn it into a quote-unquote research paper. Yeah. Um, but again, it, get, it got accepted and it got attention, not because the science in that paper is particularly good or, or rigorous. It, it's, it's a concept yeah. um, that I think um, 
uh, has proven to be useful as time's yeah. gone on. Going into lesions now, finally. Um, uh, Aaron, Aaron, <laughs> we will get there eventually. Aaron Bose um, came along. Uh, yeah. What did he find? He had a patient, right? Yeah, so it, it all started with a patient. So he, he literally saw a patient when he was a fellow over at Mass General in his pediatric neurology clinic, and this was a 16-year-old girl that came in with a pedunculate hallucinosis syndrome. So you know, she driving her car, all of a sudden, you know, was looking out her window, and boom, uh, the whole countryside looked like it had been drawn in by, by crayon. Right, and uh, huh. as as Aaron tells the story, and I think he actually wrote up her case report. You know, she she pulled her car over to the side of the road, looked at the passenger seat sitting next to her, and all of a sudden a bunch of flowers sprouted up from the passenger seat. Wow. And then she reached over to try and touch the flowers, and they all fell over. Right, wow. and and so she she told Aaron Bose this story in clinic. You know, and he took a history, no psychiatric history, no reason to think this would be schizophrenia. A little young for that, and. Um, you know, staffed the case with Vern Cabanis, right, one of the pioneers in neurology, and, and Vern said, oh, I, I think she had a stroke. Mm -hmm. She's 16 years old, I, you know, but sure enough, she did. She had a lesion in her medial thalamus. And, but it was that patient um, that got Aaron really curious to say, okay, well, great, I, I read up on pedunculate hallucinosis. I understand this is a thing. I understand that we see this, and we've seen this for 100 years, but I still don't understand why a lesion in these subcortical locations would be causing visual hallucinations. And yeah. so, um, you know, he dug at it and dug at it and dug at it and just wasn't satisfied with the answer. And he had a very nice paper ready to go, just, you know, kind of a comprehensive analysis of all the lesions that he could collate in the literature yeah. that had ever caused this syndrome. Um, and then he just happened to knock on my door and say, hey, Mike, I hear you do some kind of brain connectivity stuff, do you think that would be useful for understanding this patient's lesion? Mm -hmm. and, and that critical question, right, that Aaron yeah. asked, ended up launching this, this entire technique. Because, you know, Aaron was onto something. He had the right idea, and, um, and it, it, I think, has proven useful for understanding pedunculate hallucinosis, but for linking up lesions that cause a wide variety of different neurological and psychiatric symptoms. Super, and, and we forgot to summarize what the, the, the general principle. So you have lesions causing the same symptom, and they don't overlap always, right? They can be always like everywhere in the brain. Yeah, and then yeah. Yeah, so I'd say there's there's two problems that Aaron ran into, right? That lesion network mapping was able to help solve. So one problem is the problem of heterogeneity and lesion location, where it's very very common that lesions that cause a similar syndrome don't intersect the same brain region. Yeah. So in pedunculate hallucinosis, all the lesions are in the brainstem and the thalamus, but they can be in lots of different locations in the brainstem and thalamus. Yeah. And so when Aaron looked at all these different lesion cases, cases, there was a lot of heterogeneity. They didn't all intersect one spot. So that was problem number one, was heterogeneity and lesion location. But problem number two was even if all the lesions did intersect mm -hmm. one spot, let's say in the medial thalamus, yeah that still doesn't tell you how the, the lesion's causing visual hallucinations. And not that, connected to a visual cortex. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that gets yeah, to yeah, this yeah, diaschesis yeah. phenomenon, yeah. right? That, that a lesion in any location has a functional effect on any brain region that's connected to that lesion location. Yeah. Um, so even if the lesions weren't heterogeneous, there would still be an extra step that, that could be needed to understand where the symptoms are coming from. And so lesion network mapping was, was the idea that, hey, we know that there's heterogeneity in lesion location. We know that there are diaschesis effects of the lesion on anything that lesion is connected to. Yeah. Do we have any tool that could tell us what that lesion location is connected to? Um, and that's exactly what we did, right? Is, is you know, 
Aaron looked at each lesion location. He then turned to a normative wiring diagram of the human brain, and it's important to emphasize that, right? We, we never scanned any of these patients with functional connectivity yeah. to see what the lesion was connected to, and in fact, if we had scanned the patient, it wouldn't have worked, yeah. right? Because the, the tissue at the lesion location is dead. It's not connected to anything anymore. Yeah. Um, so you go to a normative wiring diagram of the human brain collected from a thousand healthy individuals, and it's, it's an atlas that tells you what is this lesion location connected to. Then you do that for each lesion location, and that allows you to say, hey, do these lesions in different spots all line up? Are they all connected to anything in common? Yeah. And then two, what, what is that? Um, and it might be a brain region that's actually not lesioned by any of those lesions because the symptom might emerge from a diaschesis-like effect. Super cool, and, and that, that shows they all, so you find the common denominator, and then in that, first paper already you mentioned that the anti-correlation seemed to be important because they would connect to the spot in the visual cortex. So, so the, the, all the lesions were anti-correlated anti to that spot. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Very nice. So, so um, what were maybe general challenges developing this, this method further? Do you, do you have any, or, or, or also wins from the method? So, so what, what followed after that? Yeah, so I, I think it, it um, so the wins were easy. <laughs> so so it just, it sort of became a, you know, so Aaron, after he got his win with binocular hallucinosis, I think we submitted that paper to a couple different places and it got rejected. Okay. Um, and, you know, people weren't interested in just pedicular hallucinosis, right? Neurologists are interested in that, especially really nerdy neurologists like us, right? Yeah. But but um, but they were interested in, in could this be a, a a technique that holds true more generally. So, sure. so in, even in that first paper, to get it accepted, we had to go through and show, hey, this isn't just a unique phenomenon that's only relevant to pedunculic hallucinosis, that it might also be useful for subcortical aphasia, um, for pain, mm -hmm. for auditory hallucinations, right? Yeah. And, and Aaron put all those together and said, hey, look, this, this isn't just a one-off. This could be a general principle for how we understand strokes and, and focal effects of, yeah. of lesions and network effects of lesions. Um, and, and Aaron was right. Um, and so after he did that initial paper, it was almost off to the races. And then mm -hmm. it just became any fellow or resident that knocked on my door, you know, I was like, all right, what are you interested in? Yeah. You know, I'm interested in hemicorrhea. All right, go for it. Yeah. Map out lesions. Okay. And so it, it, and then I, I started to get, um, fellows knocking on my door with totally crazy ideas and, you know, Ryan Darby knocking on my door and be like, you know, I I'm interested in capgrass syndrome. Uh, you know, can it solve the capgrass syndrome? I was like, well, probably not, but give it a try. And, um, and then it, it just, um, it was just shocking where it, it just kept working. Um, and it, it wasn't like, you know, it, it worked half the time, you know, we don't have a whole bunch of skeletons in our closet where it's, oh, you know, we tried it all these different syndromes and we got absolutely nothing. Um, it, it, it just kept working. And so I, I think it, it, Aaron just stumbled upon a, a fundamental principle of how the brain works and how symptoms localize. And they just, yeah. they don't localize to regions. They just localize really well to networks. And this resting state connectivity, because it's polysynaptic, because it, it reveals functional relationships, yeah. ended up being a good way to, to map these things out. And then I think the challenges um, that you asked about, uh, you know, anytime there's a new method, it, it gets to this debate of the, the, you know, the processing algorithm for resting state data. Sure. You know, there yeah. are many different ways you can do this. Um, 
you know, do you, do you take the peak sites of lesion intersection and run that as a seed, or do you run each lesion location as a seed? Um, and, and actually, that was a debate Aaron Bose and I had for that first paper, and it okay. remains an ongoing debate. Okay. Um, in some of his recent papers, he's done things that way. Um, there's a debate of, you know, is functional connectivity the way to do it, or is anatomical connectivity mm -hmm. a more useful way to map lesions onto, onto networks and onto yeah. circuits? And, um, you know, are there different symptoms where anatomical connectivity might be better than functional connectivity? So I, I think there's a lot of ongoing good methodological debate and development yeah. to figure out how we optimize the technique. But I think the, the general principle that lesions causing the same symptom map onto a, a network or a circuit um, is, is holding true. Seems to work, yeah, definitely. So how, how did it feel once you realized this? It probably took a few years, right? Get the first papers out, but at some point you realized, hey, this really seems to work. What was that feeling like? Probably was, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it, there was, was never a moment, yeah, right? Yeah, it's, sure. it's cumulative. And, and, and I wouldn't say, you know, even now, I, I'd say, oh, it, it you know, I'm now confident it works, yeah. right? I keep looking for that example where it fails, sure. right? And, and um, you know, I, I would say that there were definitely moments where, you know, I, I kind of couldn't believe that it was working, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, like when Ryan Darby first showed that lesions that cause delusions of fam familiarity, right, mm. are connected to the familiarity detector and they're all connected to our reality monitor. And, yeah. and like all of a sudden it was like, Oh, for, for a century, people have hypothesized this is a dual-hit syndrome. Like, the lesion must be doing two things and disrupting two different processes to cause this very, you know, amazing delusion of familiarity. And it, it was like, okay, sure enough, the lesion's connected to two different things and two mm -hmm. different networks. And, and It's too good to be true. Kind yeah, of yeah, exactly. It's, it's one of those things where it, it just makes... I, I don't know. I, I do believe in science that things that are true feel simple in yeah. retrospect and and again it just was like it made so much sense sure. um, yeah. Yeah. and and so I, I do think that each time we study a new syndrome and a, and a complex syndrome and things all of a sudden make sense it it you know it just yeah. continues to amaze me right that Absolutely. that you know we, we have a tool that can even begin to study some of these more complex yeah. things you know it have papers on free will and criminality yeah, and yeah, yeah. just things that religion right yeah. that, that you just you can barely even make these topics accessible to neuroscience in general with any technique yeah. and the idea that I you know happen to have a tool that allows me to address these fascinating questions that go beyond you know neuroscience or direct patient care is super fun super cool yeah very very nice I remember loosely that you were at the time in this beginning phase collaborating strongly with um, you know methods people like Hesheng Liu, Randy Buckner, Tom Yeo. Was that was that important to get the, the setup and the you know the connectome running, or would you would you think in general your network mattered a lot at that point to to, to get this this running? Well, hundred percent. Yeah. No, I, I you know one of my general principles is to try to always find someone smarter than me <laughs> and then partner with them and collaborate with them. Yeah. And, okay. and certainly at that period in time, um, th that, you know, group that you mentioned was so helpful in so many ways where, mm -hmm. you know, I had just come in from WashU. I was spending most of my time being a resident, sure. right? And so I only had time for science on the nights and weekends. And I certainly didn't have time to, you know, rewrite all the WashU code to work with, 
you know, the system in Boston, yeah. right? And so just the, even the, the format of the imaging files and, and the, you know, the resting state data sets and, you know, all that was different. Sure. Um, M&I space was not a thing at WashU, oh, really? right? Okay. Nifty yeah. files were not a thing at WashU. Yeah. Um, and luckily, Randy Buckner had moved from WashU to Boston uh -huh. just about five years or so prior to me and had already solved all these problems. Really? So having Randy as a mentor, I, I mean, I, I would have been, he, he basically allowed me to accelerate my entire research portfolio, you know, by five to ten years because he had already solved so many of these problems. And then, you know, in, in his lab and collaborating with him were Thomas Yeo and his Shang Lu, and they were very generous with their time and their expertise to, to help get some of these things working. And so, you know, it was really the right group of people at the right time that, that helped me tremendously. So you mapped since then quite a bunch of symptoms, um, as you, you mentioned a few, so seven years after this first paper now, you wrote uh, just recently a review together with Juhu Dutzer and Dan Korp, who both postdocs with you at some point, and I think it includes a more or less exhaustive table at the time, currently, of, of symptoms and functions mapped with the technique, I'm just going to read a few of them, not all of them, <laughs> addiction, echinic, Akinetic mutism, alien limb, aphasia, amnesia, anosognosia, for hemiphagia, autoscopic, um, oh, my, my German accent is too terrible, <laughs> blindsight, bodyless awareness disorders, bodily self-confidence, and so on. Coma, criminality, central hyperventilation yeah. syndrome. So, Alphabetical. So it, it's exactly. I just, I, I wanted to make the point. I just made it to the third letter, and I even skipped a few now. So, so um, lots of symptoms have been mapped. Why... Do you think is the technique so powerful and also now popular? So I'd like to believe that it works so well because we stumbled upon, um, you know, a fundamental principle of how lesions cause symptoms, yeah. and we just happened to have a tool at our disposal that is very, very useful for understanding lesions and lesion effects and relating lesions to one another. Yeah. Um, so I I, I want to believe that that is why it has worked across so many different neurological and psychiatric symptoms, yeah. right? Um, I would say there's a skeptical side, um, which in a concern that I, I, I will, you know, continue to harbor, because you always got to be very skeptical of, of your own stuff. And, you know, and, and the skeptical side is to say, oh, well, it, it has worked and it's gotten popular because it's super easy with a very low bar, right? Mm -hmm. Where all you have to do is search for case reports of lesions causing fill in the blank, yeah. right? Copy those lesion locations onto an atlas, take a publicly available connectome, right, which anybody yeah. can download, and then you just take the lesions and run them as seeds, right? So you can run a lesion network mapping study in, what, three months, mm. six months? Yeah. Um, and so it's a very low bar to go in and study an interesting symptom. Well, that, that creates a danger, right? Sure. Um, and, and so it, it's going to gain popularity because it's easy to use and apply, yeah. um, but, but it also comes with a lot of risk that you know, because it's easy to use and easy to apply, maybe people have done 20 times these number of conditions, and then through publication bias, we just don't even know about the times where it doesn't work, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, uh, there are probably instances where people are applying the technique to things that it shouldn't be applied to. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's funny, you, <laughs> reading that off that table actually reminds me of a review article I did with Mike Gracious early in the days of resting state functional mm -hmm. connectivity, where we did this 
you know, ridiculous table of all the disorders where resting state functional connectivity had been applied. Oh, right? interesting. And, and in that review article, we, we actually made the point that it's being applied to too many things, uh -huh. right? And that it can't be possible that all of these are, you know, disorders of resting state connectivity in the default mode network. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and so, you know, I, I think it's great when a new technique is developed. I think it's great when it's widely applied. But when it does get applied that broadly, you do wonder, should it be applied that broadly? And is yeah. this just a fundamentally valuable way for mapping out different symptoms? Or is it being over-applied because it's just easy to do with a, a low barrier to entry? Mm -hmm. and, and I'd say time would tell. You know, yeah. I, I think you know, we haven't yet done the prognostic prospective study of do any of these lesion networks actually predict which lesion patients are going to develop these symptoms, mm -hmm. and you know those studies are, are ongoing. Yeah. Um, but I think that the prognostic value of lesion network mapping will be a real important test. Yeah. Of does this hold water? And then there's a a lot of um, therapeutic targets or possible therapeutic targets that have come out of these lesion network mapping studies, and those are all testable hypotheses. Yeah. Um, that that that's the perfect segue into the next guest question again by Aaron Bose. Um, let's hear that one. Of all the lesion network mapping studies that you've worked on, which do you think has the most promise for a novel therapeutic target? Yeah, great question. So um, I, I'd say, you know, that one's, you know, the, the front runner in my mind is definitely addiction. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, we've studied mostly lesions that cause a symptom, right? And you can map it onto a network, yeah. but there's now a, a you know, a, a, a conceptual leap to say, all right, that network yeah. for lesions that cause a symptom, is that the network you need to target to make the symptom better? Because yeah. um, it, it might be, but it might not be, yeah. right? It might be you have to target a different network that helps you compensate for that symptom. Yeah. But then a very small number of symptoms, we, we study lesions that get rid of a symptom. Yeah. So lesions that get rid of tremor map onto a brain circuit that exactly highlights the VIM nucleus of the thalamus, which is our DBS target for tremor. Yeah. And then the next one that Yuho Yutsu uh, did was you know, lesions that get rid of addiction. And because it's lesions that improve a symptom, you don't have that conceptual leap, sure. right? It's this is the connectivity profile of a lesion that gets rid of addiction. Yeah. So where are the spots in the brain that best match that connectivity profile? In theory, that's where you should put a lesion to get rid of addiction. Yeah. And so, you know, we have a spot near the anterior cingulate that comes out, which is a classic lesion target for addiction. Yeah. Um, we have a spot in the anterior insula in the frontal operculum that comes out that's a classic, um, well, the insula, I guess, is a lesion-based target for addiction. Nobody's actually lesioned the insula that I'm aware of. But, yeah. but we do have a couple spots where I, I'd say if those spots fail, if you lesion those spots and they fail to help addiction, that would be a pretty... Um, direct challenge to the therapeutic value of lesion network mapping. Makes sense. Okay. And 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 then you if if you would want to go one step in between before lesioning, you could also apply non-invasive stimulation, for example, TMS and TDCS. Would you would you say the same applies there that the the lesions that, that you know um, cause to loss of a symptom or, or improvement of a symptom would be better for that or would you say there is different because yeah, yeah so it's it's the the, the challenge and, and that's why I said if you put a lesion there that's yeah. the best test of the hypothesis yeah. right sure um, and, and the challenge with different non-invasive technologies is that they're not really a lesion yeah. right so people 
talk about TMS as a virtual lesion, mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's really not, yeah. right? Um, and even DBS, right? We think of DBS sort of like a lesion if you administer it high frequency, but really that's just because through trial and error, it kind of seemed like it acts like a lesion in certain movement disorders. Yeah. And so it's very possible that it is the right therapeutic target, that a lesion could work really well at that location, but that TMS to that spot or focus ultrasound to that spot or DBS to that spot might not work. Yeah. Now, now that might be the right next step, sure. right? Um, certainly for, you know, uh, lesion therapies, there needs to be a very high bar before you go in and start lesioning patients. Yeah. Um, but that is scientifically the best test of the hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah makes sense. That's, that's very, um, makes a lot of sense. Great points. So in, I think all of these symptoms, or many of these symptoms, um, led to an invited review um, that you wrote for the New England Journal of Medicine in 2018, which also shows, I think, the big impact and interest in this technique. Um, from all these symptoms and functions that you've studied, which, do you have a favorite one? Just, you know, personal favorite. Yeah, I'd have to think about that one if I had to choose a favorite. There's, there's been a lot of yeah. very, very um, exciting moments as, you know, we saw different lesion network mapping results and kind of, you know, put our hands behind our heads and said, wow, <laughs> that's really cool. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, going back to that story I told earlier, like the day Ryan Darby, quote yeah. unquote, solved the capgrass delusion, yeah. right? That, that one to me was, that, that was really cool. I, Super cool story. It's hard to know if it's, yeah. if it's right, yeah. <laughs> but it makes a lot of sense. Let's um, go with that. So, yeah. so, so, so what, what, one key point that you recently also highlighted together with Shan Siddiqui um, in a review paper is that, and you mentioned it before, that the lesions introduce a causal modification to the brain, right? You, you, you have a stroke and then something changes. It's a causal intervention. There are other causal interventions, and namely, I would say, um, brain simulation, as you point out. So, so deep brain simulation and TMS and, and other forms of neuromodulation are, are other forms of causal intervention and your lab has combined all three of these in some papers, sometimes two of these in sources of information. Can you talk a little bit of, about that? What, what's the importance of these causal? Yeah, yeah, and so it's, uh, I, gave, I, I was, got to give a very nice lecture at the uh, Organization for Human Brain Mapping uh, a few years ago, and it was, um, thinking what, what is the message that I want to give to all the neuroimagers out there? Um, and, and it was very clear, which is, you know, we need to rethink neuroimaging. We've been mm -hmm. doing neuroimaging for you know, three or four decades, looking at, you know, imaging correlates of these symptoms we want to treat. But our track record of translating those imaging correlates of symptoms into newer effective treatments is not good. Yeah. Um, and, and why is that? It might be, oh, we're just not there yet, and it has to evolve over time, and that's the standard answer. Or it might be that fundamentally there's something wrong with this approach. And, sure. and I'm not the only one to worry about this, right? It's kind of emerged as the, this idea of the causality gap, yeah. um, where you can have an imaging correlate, but that doesn't mean that that's an effective therapeutic target. And so if we believe that that's a problem, then how do we close that causality gap? And one way to close it is um, you know, through what I call the causality opportunity. It's to focus on causal sources of information for mapping out symptoms. And brain lesions is our original one. And in fact, brain lesions and these incidental observations of lesions doing different things led to many of our effective neuromodulation targets. And so lesion-based localization actually has a very good track record. Yes for turning into effective treatments um, compared to neuroimaging correlates. So, all right, let's double down on the 
path that's working um, and, and maybe you know, deviate a little bit from the path that's popular. And so um, we focused all in on, on lesions as the dominant causal source of information, you know, followed by DBS electrolocations or TMS um, uh, stimulation sites um, with the idea that you can map things out based on one causal source of information, and that should be valuable, but if you can actually do convergent causal mapping, if you can map out the circuit based on lesions, map out the circuit based on DBS effects, and map out the circuit based on TMS effects, and these three causal sources of information all converge on the same brain circuit. Yeah. Well, now you got a really strong case that that you know this this circuit is causally linked to this symptom in humans, and modulating this circuit causally leads to a change in that symptom. You know that's as strong as you can get as your candidate therapeutic target, and um, that's what Sean Siddiqui did recently for depression. Just wanted to say that's probably the canonical study so far, right? That, that can you summarize what what he did in like in that study? Yeah, so so he took um, you know uh, five lesion data sets um, where they did depression scores after the stroke, and then he took you know uh, roughly five DBS data sets and five TMS data sets. Um, where in the DBS data sets they measured depression scores before and after DBS, TMS, same thing, depression yeah. scores before and after TMS. And in each one of these cases, he mapped out what the lesion, the DBS site, or the TMS site was connected to. And then asked, okay, which connections co-vary with depression score or change in depression score? And so you can map out a lesion-based depression circuit, a DBS-based depression circuit, and a TMS-based depression circuit, and just ask, do, do these three things line up? Yeah. And, and they did. They lined up really well. Yeah. Um, that's another one of those moments where I remember Sean popping those three maps up on the screen and just looking <laughs> at me like, no, this can't be real. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I think it, it, it was the best and the most rigorous test yet of this idea that lesions and brain stimulation sites or TMS sites and DBS sites are all going to converge at the circuit level and that resting state connectivity might be a useful tool for um, testing whether these things converge at the circuit level. And I mean, we, we can even say, I think in that study, that the DBS sites were not all in depression, right? They were somewhere in epilepsy, somewhere in Parkinson's disease. So you even have some cross-disease um, symptom mapping in, in that paper as well. So, so it's, it's, I think it's a, it's a really, really landmark paper, really great work there. Um, I think the next guest question, again by Aaron, will will you know, I don't know if you have a spontaneous answer to that. Maybe you have to think about it a bit, but we'll see. What do you envision lesion studies will look like 50 years from now? Hmm. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, you know, I think everything's moving towards big data mm -hmm. and big lesion collections. And, and, you know, Aaron Bowes being at Iowa is just a, such a beautiful, beautiful thing because Iowa's got this rich, you know, history of of really collecting lesion um, cases mm -hmm. and studying and phenotyping lesion cases, and and Aaron has kind of revitalized that at, at Iowa, and, and you know, you build big ends, um, you know, the Discovery Lesion Cohort being run by Natalia Roast over at MGH, you know, the goal is to collect eight thousand um, lesions, six thousand of which will be focal strokes, and you know, and and phenotyping all these patients. And so I, I think it, uh, it'll move towards, you know, a lot of our lesion papers now are 30 lesions that cause this thing. Well, yeah. you know, 6,000 lesions, right, is a, is a different level of power. Yeah. Now, they won't be as clean phenotypically. One of the things that's been nice about lesion network mapping is these, these case reports 
of this really clean phenotype that somebody was motivated to write up have been just worth their weight in gold. So, so I, I, I'll answer it two ways. I think um, one is moving towards big data, yeah. huge lesion data sets um, where we've got depression scores, memory scores, you name it. Um, and, and I think that those efforts are happening. But, but I think the other effort that has to happen, and I'm not sure how to put some motivation behind it, is, is doubling down on these incidental cases mm -hmm. that just have these very clean, striking phenotypes. You know, where you see the case and it's like, wow, right? Yeah. Like, the lesion did that. And, and right now, I don't know that we have a great way to capture those very important and interesting mm. lesion cases that are, that are they're not you know subtle changes in depression score, but just that striking phenotype yeah. where the lesion either caused a severe depression in somebody with no history of psychiatric illness or got rid of depression in somebody with a big history of psychiatric illness. Mm -hmm. and, and right now, those cases are happening. I'm convinced yeah. that they're happening. And if you could find a way to collate the world's you know, database of stroke, you know, all the stroke cases in mm -hmm. China and India and yeah. all the different institutions in the U.S., I, I think if you, could, if you could capitalize on that in some way, you, you would be leveraging serendipity towards therapeutic targets yeah. at scale. Yeah. Um, and so I'd say that's the other thing that I'd like to see happen in the next 50 years of lesion studies. Sounds great. I, I very much share that vision. Very cool. Um, I think The, the podcast, as you know, is, is about deep brain simulation, mainly, or brain simulation. So, so we've talked a lot about lesions, and they have a great value for, for informing um, both invasive and non-invasive brain simulation targets. But you also clinically and scientifically um, are very much involved in deep brain simulation. So are there, maybe in parallel to what, what Aaron asked, any key highlights you foresee for the future in that field? Just in DBS yeah, or TMS or both of them, but yeah, maybe DBS. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. So it's an area of rapid development. Your yeah. your podcast has covered those developments across brilliant speed. By the way, I'll take a moment to say I love this podcast, <laughs> and I, I love all the speakers you've had, and and it is a absolute privilege to to be interviewed given the the Thank set you of people much. that you've interviewed so far. So you you've well documented a lot of different visions of where DBS is going. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think if I have anything actually useful to, to add or complement what all the other speakers have, have said about DBS. You I mean, know, my follow-up question would be, yeah. what do you think about closed-loop deep brain simulation? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you want to talk about Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, you know, I'm excited about it. As an electrical engineer, yeah. it's you know, super-duper cool, right? I think I'll, I'll mention a couple of things to complement what other people on this podcast have said previously. So one is um, there's a lot of development in the DBS area that I think is driven by very cool engineering and the ability to do cool things with our engineering and maybe a little bit less by patient need, right? Mm -hmm. um, I. I I believe fundamentally in the clinician scientist model and you know doing DBS clinically really tells me what the problems are yeah. right and you know the problems are, are balanced the problems are freezing the problems yeah. are speech side effects right that and and some of those problems can be addressed with closed loop or adaptive design but so, yeah. some of them maybe not so much right um, and and so I think for me I, I spent a lot of time thinking about um, you know, stimulation site and, and symptom-specific circuits and side effect circuits. And um, 
Uh, and so I, I think one is, is can we change the location of stimulation slightly um, to you know, better avoid a side effect like cognitive decline and STNDVS or Parkinson's disease, yeah. or, or maybe even have some benefit um, you know, on gait or balance or freezing. Now, you know, not with our traditional target that improves tremor or, or improves rigidity, it's going to be a different circuit target, but it doesn't mean that there's not some circuit that we could reach with you know, flipping on a different contact yeah. that could have a, a, a symptomatic benefit on some of these things that right now we, we feel like can't respond to DVS. Um, or even the psychiatric side effects. You know, sure. it's very common that we'll have a patient with psychiatric issues, you know, depression, anxiety, and they want to know is, is can you do anything about this with my DBS electrode? And right now we say no. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we can't. That just means we don't know how to do it yet. Yeah. So, so I do think it's moving towards this idea of symptom-specific circuits, of reprogramming trials, of flipping on other contacts in different ways that might help different symptoms. Yeah. And then the other one that I'll, I'll mention, just because you, know, you already know what I think about closed loop, but, but I like being controversial and, and telling people that one future of DBS is extremely cool engineering and fancy devices and closed loop designs with sensing all over the brain and stimulating in different areas of the brain. And the other future of DBS is just burning a hole and yeah. going back to lesions. Yeah. And, and that, again, just came from my patients, where, where as focus ultrasound became an option, I would see patients over and over again where, where they would you know, see somebody for a focus ultrasound intervention, they'd see me for DBS. Both of us would tell them that DBS is better um, and it can give you better tremor benefit with fewer side effects. And, yeah. and time and time again, the patients were opting for the lesion. It just kind of blew my mind. And then it suddenly dawned on me that, that patients don't really want a, a fancy piece of engineering in their head if they can avoid it. And the idea that they could do one and done uh, might be preferable for certain patients, certain symptoms, certain conditions, especially as we start moving into you know psychiatric symptoms. So, yeah. uh, you know, my controversial take on it is that you know DBS is just a stepping stone to figure out exactly where those symptom-specific circuits are and the exact spot in the brain that we need to modulate to have our benefit without side effects. But once you know that exact spot, you know, burning a small hole there, if you yeah. can be confident that it has the effect, might might actually be the future. And I guess it's, it's, it's two things, right? It's, it's knowing exactly where it's a lesion, but also being able to as precisely as possible lesion yes. there, right? And I love the idea just, you know, the, the idea that the MR-guided focused ultrasound happens in the MRI, because even if it's not perfect yet, I think that technology will have the possibility to see exactly where your lesion, right? In anatomical coordinates and so on. So some more. So, so I know that you're working on the concept of the return of the lesion and I think in that you propose that after lesions had a break over history um, to some degree they are now celebrating a comeback and not only for therapeutics but also for diagnostics. The, the broader principle that I think is important for, for me and, and maybe for your listeners is you know, where have our successes come from, mm. right? And, and, you know, right now it's, you know, we're trying to build a center, right? And, and the whole goal is, is, is new treatments, right? And, and academia, you know, you're motivated by papers, you're motivated by grants, and, but, um, you know, the, the, the goal really needs to be treatments, right? And, and so it's, it's spending a lot of time thinking about where have our successes come from, where have our wins come from, yeah. and how do we learn from that, leverage it, improve upon it. And, and lesions have such a strong history and such a strong track record that, that yeah, going back to lesion-based localization has value. And then 
Yeah, and again, it's it's controversial, right? But to say that lesions might be a a future neuromodulation intervention, um, you know, is worth thinking about. It's what is going to be that disruptive technology. Um, it also, I think, hits on one other point that that's useful to make, which is. I've spent a lot of time in my career watching where the herd is going and intentionally going in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason is, is that um, if the herd's already going there, the, the, the world doesn't need me in that realm. And so yeah. you mentioned you know, closed loop and adaptive DBS. The, the people working on that are some of the smartest people that I've ever met, right? Yeah. You go to DBS Think Tank, you're just blown away by what people are doing with the, the engineering, the electrophysiology. Yeah. And so they don't need me there. Right, like, like I'm not smart enough to compete in that space, sure. and and so it's it's okay. What are they not doing or not thinking about? Um, or you know, when I came out of residency, you know, I, I went into residency being someone really focused on resting state connectivity. Right, well, I came out of residency, and there was a whole army of people working on developing resting state connectivity. They didn't need me there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, you know, right now with therapeutics, it's the same way. Right, they're, they're, if adaptive and closed loop designs are going to get us there we're going to get there. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's what is the area that's not being explored um, where I could potentially add value. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I like it as a principle because I think the more heterogeneity we have in science, the more people pursuing different ideas, different options, crazy avenues, the faster we actually get to effective treatments. Yeah. And that's everybody's goal. Sounds great. A great concept and, and teaching point. So, so the, the um, serendipity story was, was actually the next question I wanted to, to um, pick your brain on. You, you already summarized it, but I think it, it's worth to mention a bit further that I think it's motivated by Marwan Haris's recent, um, or at least that was one paper that, that um, you, you really liked in that realm, um, where he made the point that looking back, back at history, there's not so many wins that, as one would think from, you know, coming from the animal research model, where we usually think, you know, we have a mouse model, we, we study something in the brain, and then we derive a therapeutic target from that for neuroscience and looking back there's just not so many wins in that there are some but you know not so many but but there are a lot of wins in the you know just looking at case reports or looking at variations and interventions do you have thoughts on how we could capitalize on that further yeah yeah this was the uh you know think tank right i kind of proposed that and and yeah I, i you know so serendipity and the role of serendipity is is something that i've loved for for a long time i was just so excited to see uh marwan's article yeah. where he just he, he did the hard work of putting together the history which i don't know right mm-hmm. I, i'm not a historian it's actually one of the reasons i love the podcast so much is is i get the history that i wish i would have gotten from having all of these people as my mentor right that they could tell yeah. me the history and so so it's um it, it's trying to learn from from that that history and um you know one of the things that that you've pointed out is, yeah, okay, functional neuroimaging correlates don't have a great track record of turning into new treatments. Mm. Um, mouse models of human brain diseases don't have a great track record of translating into new, new treatments. So what does have a good track record? Mm-hmm. Or are we just doomed to failure no matter what avenue we pursue? And again, that that's the trial and error in human patients, yeah. right? Um, and and it, it sounds brutal, and yeah. it sounds very non-scientific, and maybe even you know non-ethical, mm-hmm. But that is the history of our wins. That's where our successful treatments came from. You know, it was the, the incidental observation of, you know, James Parkinson's patient number six had a stroke and the tremor stopped. Yeah. So what did we do? We started lesioning and creating strokes all over the place, right? Trying to 
get Tremor to stop, yeah. right? And and eventually, you know, we, we had trial and error success where, you know, people went in, tried to lesion one thing, had a bleed somewhere else, <laughs> suddenly somebody's tremor stopped and they weren't paralyzed. Okay, huge win. Yeah. Um, but it, it, was, it was these trial and error um, interventions on human patients with careful observers yeah. as to what was working and what was not working, um, taking full advantage of the heterogeneity in their outcomes and then refining their treatment over time until they converged on something that worked with minimal side effects. Yeah. And so that pathway that worked very, very well in movement disorders, yeah. um, you know, how do you apply that, that elsewhere? And so I, I look at, you know, we recently had the paper on addiction. So there were a bunch of lesion treatments for addiction happening in China, happening in India, right? And they, they got shut down, and, and maybe for very good reasons. I don't know the history, yeah. um, but there were ethical concerns, there were side effect concerns. Um, but those lesions are now all lost to the dustbin of history. And, and I know I tried to get them, <laughs> okay. right? And, and, but, but they weren't recorded in a systematic way. People didn't yeah. look at the heterogeneity, what worked, what didn't work. Oh, here's an incidental case where I actually was aiming for the anterior cingulate yeah. and I missed and I got this other spot. Well, did it work better? Did it work worse? And so I think, you know, you had the people developing therapies for movement disorders that were leveraging the heterogeneity in their outcomes. They were embracing yeah. serendipity. They were studying it, right? Yeah. And they had lesion therapies in probably the same number of cases for addiction where they weren't taking that same approach, or at least yeah. not in a way that I've been able to access. Um, and so to, to me, you, you can learn from that history, learn from where the winds came from. Yeah. And when I talk on, you know, how do we go all in on leveraging serendipity, which was a controversial question to even pose at Think Tank, because by definition, you can't plan for or leverage serendipity, sure. but but maybe you can. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, it's it's. Um, and you had some ideas on how to. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or just you know, it's 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 any time you intervene on a human brain. Yeah. Right. Especially with some type of causal intervention. Yeah. Whether that be a lesion, a DBS electrode, a TMS site. Right. Um, you know. To give me, I, I, you know, I listened to Josh Gordon's interview, right? And and the NIMH has done a really good job of essentially mandating certain things, and it moves the entire field, yeah. right? So they mandated that they want some imaging biomarker of any intervention for a mental yeah. health disorder, right? Well, what if you mandated that any DBS trial has to publish their electrode locations, mm -hmm. any TMS trial has to record the exact site of stimulation, mm -hmm. right? You know, that's a way that you plan for serendipity and you leverage it, right? Yeah. Because now you start building a, um, you know, here's what worked, here's what didn't work, here's had this unusual effect or didn't, and, and then people can mine that and, and begin to back out and converge on, you know, a target that might be even more effective yeah. that was just because you got the electrode in the wrong spot. Yeah. Um, Love the idea, right? So to make that mandatory, that would be great for everybody, right? And, and I think everybody would love it, right? If everybody shares their sites, um, you know, that, that would be would be super, yeah. yeah. I think the other thing you once mentioned would be a, you know, we, if we have a really informative case report, it's usually, there's no good journal for that, right? Or it's, it's not, you know, um, valued as much as, as, a, as a big paper. So that could be another option, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, as we were brainstorming the other day, it would be amazing to have a you know, registry of, of, you know, causal case reports. So a lesion, a DBS stimulation site, yeah. a TMS site, right, where you have the, the causal site of intervention, and then you have the interesting behavioral phenomenon that occurred after that. And if you could create, you know, may, maybe publishing each one of these case reports in a paid, you know, journal is not the, the way forward. Yeah. But but if you had a an online registry of these cases that became a, you know, PubMed indexed or citable element, 
where you know now residents can just submit their interesting cases, right? Yeah. And eventually you start accumulating enough cases that people can make sense of different lesion locations that did something or DBS sites that did something. Um, could be a cool, cool model. Love the idea. And so on. So, so I have one more question in that direction before we move on to some more general questions by somebody in Australia. So, Hi, Mike and Andy. Mike, my question is, who is your favorite Australian postdoc of all time? <laughs> and don't answer that if you've had another one other than me. <laughs> no, my real question is, what do you think of companies like Neuralink? I'm sure that you've been asked this a lot, but I've never heard your thoughts on it. Do you think that these companies are the future and that they can really help people with brain disorders? Or is the human brain just too complex? Thank you, and I hope to see you both soon in person. So thanks, Dan Corr. Great to hear from you. Um, and, and then with the thick Australian accent, I, I'd also want to know what the company Neuralick is. So is that a popsicle company or like no, no. Um, so, so you know, the question about Neuralink, um, and you know, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? You know, I think any investment of resources into a um, you know important field is a good thing. Yeah. And you know that company, you know, with Elon Musk, brought in a, a huge amount of money into the field, a huge amount of, of PR and interest in the field, and um, that's almost always a good thing. Um, it'll spur development, it'll spur other companies to be interested, VC will be interested, other scientists you know, that are thinking about what they want to do with their life will get interested. Yeah. Um, and so, so I, I think it's a good thing overall. Um, now, you know, whether or not um, neuromodulation to enhance function, um, which is, I don't know, I, you know, Neuralink has changed their PR over time. Yeah. <laughs> right now, they're, they're right now focused on treating brain disease. but. Um, at one point, um, I think that they were focused on neuroenhancement, and, and they're not alone, right? There are a lot of, of other neuromodulation device companies out there that are focused on neuroenhancement. And, you know, that one, um, one, I'm not sure whether it's really possible or not. You know, you know, millions of years of evolution have tuned up our brains to work pretty well. Yeah. And um, my guess is that we can enhance certain functions. It'll be at the detriment of others. Yeah. And the idea would be you enhance certain things at certain times where it's advantageous to you and then enhance other things at other times. Um, so I, I guess one is just, even, is it even possible to do neuroenhancement? And I, I'd say maybe, but, yeah. but it's not an easy bar to overcome. Most yeah. of our brains are pretty good at, at what they need to do. Um, and there's always a risk of unexpected consequences of trying to make something that works pretty well better. Yeah. Um, but, but let's just say we can overcome that and hurdle and, and neuroenhancement becomes a thing. Um, you know, I'm not fundamentally against it. It just comes with a large set of other problems that will then need to be solved of, you know, equal access and how do you prevent the smart from getting smarter, yeah. right? And then other people that don't have access to that technology fall even further behind. And, yeah. Um, but, but in general, um, you don't really stop technical advancement. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd say the only area where we think it's actually been paused is, you know, the field of human cloning and human genetic engineering, where mm -hmm. technically we have the ability to do it, and for ethical reasons, it really has put a pause on that area of science. Yeah. Um, you know, but, you know, neuroenhancement, despite the ethical concerns, I think that you know, if it works, people will develop the technology and it's almost a, you know, 
fighting that, that I won't say it's inevitable, but, but it almost sometimes feels inevitable. Mm. The technology will advance. If it can be done, it will be done. Mm. And then only in retrospect can we have the fight over whether it should have been done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm going to move to some more general questions. Um, and uh, one is, um, yeah, hard to fit into the narrative, but I, but I, I think it's a great question by Shan. Um, I am going to play that now. Uh, and my second question is, uh, who do you think would win in if, if all of the people who you've ever mentored were in a Royal Rumble fight to the death? And, uh, obviously, you can't choose Joe Taylor because he's the best fighter out of all of us, so he would obviously win, so yeah, he can't be in this. Uh, and I know the right answer. I'm going to give you a second to think about it. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I continue to find out that you know, people that I am mentoring are very skilled in the martial arts in ways that I am not aware of. And, um, uh, you know, and so now I'm trying to figure out, he's clearly thinking of someone other than Joe. Um, and so that means there's someone else that I mentored that's very, very skilled in martial arts. And I have to think so of no, who it is now. It's not that. It's not oh, that. Oh, it's not that. Okay. Well, then I don't know. But who, I don't would know you, who would you pick? He wants to know who, who you would pick. Who would win? Who would win in Royal Rumble with everybody I've ever mentored? And I can't choose Joe Taylor. Who, yeah. <laughs> for anybody who hasn't met Joe, is, is very large yeah. and very skilled in martial arts, I believe. Um, uh, let's see. I think um, I, didn't, I didn't mentor him. I worked collaborating with him. Shang Lu uh -huh, um, yeah. was actually a, a kickboxing champion in China. Oh, wow. And so, uh, actually, Shang versus Joe would be a good, a good Rumble. <laughs> but, but I think if Shang showed up, I would probably put my money on, on him, um, especially okay. I can't put it on Joe. But I want to hear what Sean thinks. He clearly thinks let's, he knows the answer. That. Yeah. Obviously the right answer is Alex Cohen, because you'd figure out a way to, to turn everybody against each other, maybe some clever algorithm or something, so that you can step back and wait till just the right time to step in while, uh, uh, when everybody else has damaged each other to, uh, to the point of no return. But I'm curious to hear what your <laughs> wrong answer is. All right, I wouldn't have uh, I, I would have come up with that answer. So, but but uh, he is right. Alex Cohen is extremely extremely smart. I, I I would say Alex Cohen might win simply because he would be so good at collaborating with everybody mm -hmm. else that um, you know nobody would possibly uh, <laughs> risk losing Alex as, as the collaborator. And then uh, yeah, but I think Alex would be a good choice um, because he's so good at um, working with everybody else. Great. Speaking about general scientific questions or like general questions, so, so the um, I always ask about eureka moments in science, and I think we have already covered a few of them. But um, even maybe thinking back um, to your earlier days, or you know, do you have any other like great moments to, to, to share? And could also be just wins or you know lucky streaks or whatever. Yeah, just, there's been a lot of them. I mean, I. I you know, it's, I, I absolutely love this job, um, and, and I love, you know, being able to, to do the programming and write a new algorithm, and I still remember, you know, the first time that we threw in global signal regression into the resting state connectivity algorithm, right? After pounding on it for a year and a half, all of a sudden these maps popped out, and it was just like, oh, oh my God, that's beautiful. It's so much prettier than anything we've seen, right? I, I still remember how exciting it was that night, you know, right? It was probably two in the morning with Avi Snyder, right? Mm -hmm. And then, um, and I still remember sitting there with Aaron Bose the first time we looked at the connectivity of these lesions mm -hmm. causing hallucinations. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like this this could be this could be really important. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and, and so there, there's been a lot of them, and, and I continue to have one, you know, it was a couple weeks ago, right, where we sat down, it was, you know, lesions causing anorexia, okay. and it was like, oh my gosh, that makes a lot of sense, so you know, look, look for that one to come out, but, <laughs> but, but no, there's definitely been a lot of times where, where, where it's like, wow, that's super cool. Yeah, great, um, yeah, it, it, I, 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 I was lucky to witness some of them uh, over the years, so, so that's, it's, been a, it's been a great ride, I agree. So we also should always talk about failures, so, um, or missed opportunities, or you know, waste of your time, any things you want to share in that? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, you know, I, I, so the short answer is no. Um, and, and the reason being is I, I, I don't believe in failure in the sense that it, it, there's a lot of things that don't result in a publication. Sure. Right? But it's, it's only a failure if you didn't learn something from that, that process. So it's, yeah. it's, I, can't, I can think of things that we did and spent a lot of time on that resulted in a failed grant or didn't lead to a high-profile publication or yeah. we didn't even bother to write it up. But but I don't consider any of those failures because each one of those instances I could possibly list off, we learned so much from that process yeah. um, that then contributed to the next thing that did result sure. in a, a successful grant or publication. So, so no, I, I, I can't think of any... I would also say that, that I've also been very, very careful with how I spend my time mm -hmm. um, to make sure that I'm spending my time on things that I think are important. Yeah. Um, explicitly so I don't look back and say, wow, I never should have put my time yeah, into that. Yeah, yeah. That was a failure. Um, so yeah, the short answer is, is no. I, I really struggle to come up with anything that I sunk time into that I would say, nope, that was a total waste. Yeah, sounds, sounds great. And do you have tips on how to do that for, for listeners? Or, or because I mean, how do you know what's gonna turn out gold, right? I I, I think one 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 thing that struck me when I started as a postdoc with you was even you said something you know you you don't want to publish papers that don't change the field, which is I think you know a, a super it was new to me um, you know I I I think it was super helpful to hear that actually because um, you can't ch change the field with every paper obviously but the having that ambition to do it in the first place is, is I think, a good one. Or any other tips or thoughts? Yeah, that's a great question. I, so, you know, I guess one is how do you bias things in your favor? Because you're right, you, you don't know what's going to work and what's not yeah. going to work, right? Yeah. So, so one is, is you always want to have multiple horses in the race. So, mm -hmm. so don't have one project, have three projects. And, you know, and then spend your time based on which of those three projects looks like it's emerging as something truly important. Yeah. Maybe all three will, but but usually not. Usually yeah. one of the three. And so, so you know, leverage your bets, right? Have multiple horses in the race. You know, two is is think about what the end outcome is if if you're right, right? And and I think that there are people that spend a whole lot of time proving something that's right that really doesn't move the needle. Yeah. Even though they sunk a few years into it. And so, um, you know, in my case, you know, our, our goal is is translation. And so. There's a lot of cool scientific questions out there, but if it's unclear how you're going to take that result and then translate it back or use it to eventually improve a therapy, um, I tend to put that as, as lower on my rank list as to where I, I spend the time. Um, you know, we don't publish a lot of the smaller papers that we could. Um, you know, it takes a really long time to publish even a small methodological yeah. point in. in 
you know, I'd rather just kind of mention that methodological point in the next bigger paper yeah. um, and spend the time on that rather than spend the time on lots of smaller methods yeah. papers that people may or may not see. Um, and then, and then the other one is is you bias the results in your favor up front, but you're never going to get it right all the time, and you're always going to sink a lot of time into a project that that didn't work. And then it's just making sure you capitalize on that experience and that time mm -hmm. spent, so it's not a failure. Yeah. Right. So okay, you, you spend a huge amount of time on this project. It didn't result in something that that is is worth writing up. Yeah. Right. So what are you learning from that? Um, because if you didn't learn anything that you can take with you into your next project, yeah, it is a failure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but if you if you bias things up front in your favor, and then you learn from every experience that you have. Then there isn't really a failure. Yeah, yeah, that sounds sounds great. Yeah, that's that was another great piece of advice you you gave me back then. Just saying that you know even the small papers take a lot of effort, right? So are they really worth your time, right? So so hedging like from the many things you could do, I think you once formulated it in a way that was something like there's always enough ideas, but the, but the being a good scientist means to choose the ones that will have the biggest impact, right? From the ones that you could, could work on. That was also super helpful for me, so. And remember, some of the smaller papers too, someone else will do it. Sure. Right? And so it's also, don't don't write the paper that, you know, people always worry about competition, and oh, mm -hmm. am I gonna be first? And and no, that's a great opportunity to like, you know, relieve a time constraint. If someone mm -hmm. else is gonna do that paper and write it up and do a good job, then you don't have to. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and so that's that's another one is, is don't, like I said, don't join the herd. If somebody else is already doing it, let them do it. Yeah. Spend your time on something else because doing the same thing they're already doing, that's not going to help the field. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Although, so, I mean, more, some more replication is, is helpful, I think. Oh, right? yes. That is, that is yes. certainly also, you know, that that's also some, some advice one could give people that have, you know, anxiety of being scooped to say that usually both papers will be valuable. Or have some, right? But, um, yeah. Um, no, that's a good point. That's good. I, I don't want to dissuade replication. It's really, really important. Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually, I, when I review papers, you know, I, I am very positive on a well-done replication that either replicated or, in some cases, didn't replicate it. But either way, um, no, that is that is also very, very important. Then zooming out further, like very general advice to the young people entering the field: Why would they want to pick neuromodulation, or let's say, or lesion network mapping, or why neuroscience at all in, in this time? Or, or do you have any advice how to choose your topic or do you? Yeah, yeah no, I mean, it's, this is, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that if you, if you went back and looked at interviews and recordings from the last hundred years, someone is at any given decade going to say, this is the best time that you yeah. could ever go into neuroscience, right? Sure. But, and they're all right. And yeah. the reason is the tools we have available to understand the brain and convert that understanding into neuroscience treatments gets better with each decade. Yeah. So as time goes on, it's always the best time to go into neuroscience because we always have the best tools to, to actually do things. But, but no, I, I, you know, there's always a lot of, you know, poo-pooing of academia and, oh, it, it, I absolutely love my job. Mm -hmm. um, I love what I do. I get excited every day when I come to work and work with brilliant people. And, and to, now is a very awesome time to be in neuroscience. Um, I, I would say that unlike you know, people that said the same thing decades in the past, the tools we have available to us today um, allow us to go after symptoms that are in need of treatments with real optimism 
that we can rapidly translate that back into an improved DBS you know, stimulation setting or an improved TMS stimulation site. I, I think the path to translation has never been shorter. Yeah. But, but we also, with those same tools, can address topics that are important to neuroscience, but also important to society outside of neuroscience. And the fact that we can go after things like free will, criminality, religion, um, you know, is also a, a unique point in time where I don't know how you would have really studied those in a rigorous neuroscience manner without the tools we have available right now. Yeah. How will neuroscience look like in the future? What is coming? Oh, what's coming for neuroscience in general? Jeez, I, I would say um, a whole lot more human stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say that we're now doing things directly in people, you know, all the electrophysiology happening in humans that used to be only possible in rodents and, and monkeys. And so I, I think, you know, the neuroscience of the future is going to be human neuroscience because we're going to have more tools for recording both invasively and non-invasively in human patients, yeah. more tools for modulating brain circuits in human patients. And so I, I do think the ability to directly do neuroscience in humans um, is, is really exploding, yeah. and I'm excited about it. That's great. We talked about some missed opportunities, like for example recording serendipity, but do you think there are other things that we as a field, neuroscience or neuromodulation or neurology even, should be taking that we're not taking these days? Yeah, be, beyond the topics we've already discussed, I, I would say the one that I've been thinking about lately is the, you know, you know, the gap between the, the animal science and the human stuff. And it's, it's, as I've started to wade into this, it, it has been very interesting to understand just how big that, that gap is yeah. and, you know, how different the approach and motivation is when you, you're doing a, a rodent optogenetics experiment, right, versus, um, you know, the clinical problems that we're facing and, and is that optogenetics experiment actually addressing a clinical problem yeah. or is it just really cool, rigorous neuroscience? Yeah. And, um, and I, I think there just needs to be more conversations. You know, you have unique people like Carl Desroth, who is a psychiatrist and a clinician and, you know, it takes it back and forth. But, but I, I think that that's the exception, not the rule. There's a lot of very, very good basic neuroscience happening with circuit manipulation and rodents that, that we haven't found a good way to translate or have a conversation with the clinical problems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your opto-DBS, um, you yeah. know, uh, uh, approaches, you know, targeting that. Um, but but the, the opportunity there, I think, is, is big, but the gulf is, is very, very wide. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's so even just not clear if it's the same region we're talking about, right? So yeah, same, you region, don't know yeah. if it's the same yeah. disease, same symptoms, yeah. same circuit, same region. Um, I, I, again, it's the gulf is so wide that a skeptic could say, okay, you're never going to be able to take anything in a rodent and translate that to anything useful in a person. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't fall on that extreme. Um, but at the same time, I think that that many people do end up on, on the, the opposite side where they assume that this ginormous gulf doesn't exist mm -hmm. and that if you can have an effect on a symptom that kind of looks like a human symptom in a rodent, oh, well, gee, easy peasy, right? Just you know, yeah. translate that optogenetics intervention to a circuit therapy in humans. Um, and, and I think that that, 
you can't underestimate the size of that gulf. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean it's not possible to circumvent it, but it's it's massive. And so, you know, I don't want to just discount all the very cool neuroscience happening in, in, in road models, but, but how we get there, um, there's a lot more steps involved that I think is commonly appreciated. Makes sense. I want to be mindful of your time, and I would have tons of more questions. I want to stop with one last guest question by Fred Schaefer uh, for you. Hiya, Mike. This is Fred, one of your postdocs. I got a question <laughs> for you. Let's say Brigham says in six months, for some reason whatsoever, um, you can take a sabbatical. But the only thing you can do in that sabbatical is do a postdoc for two years. I'm curious, how would you decide where to go? Who would you work for? And what would you do in that postdoc? Thanks. Oh, a great question. I love it too. Man, so I get to do a, a two-year postdoc yes. with anybody that I want. Um, man, I, I so... And he wants to know how you choose. Yeah, I mean, like where, where you'd go as well, but maybe what's the rationale why? Yeah. So so it it it's always you choose the smartest person doing the thing that you don't know how to do, hmm. but you'd benefit from learning how to do it. Um, and at different points in my life, you know, that was non-invasive brain stimulation or functional neuroimaging or deep brain stimulation, and so. So I guess the question is, is what is that thing that I need to know how to do better and who could I learn it from? And, um, and, and I'd say the, the, the first thought that comes to mind is, you know, who knows how to run a center across multiple departments better than, than, than I do, right? And there are certain names that come to mind, you know, Helen Mayberg and, yeah. and others that have, have done this and launched these efforts. Because um, that one's a challenge, right? And, and I, I you know, mentioned before, you, you see where the herd's going and you intentionally do it differently, right? Well, I didn't become a you know, division head. I didn't become a you know, department chair um, because I, I don't know how I would do it differently, mm -hmm. right? Someone will do those jobs and they will do a very, very good job and probably a better job than I would do. Um, but going a different direction from the herd is building a center across multiple different departments mm -hmm. that put different people together in different ways with the idea that different things and thoughts and treatments might emerge from that. Um, but it's very challenging. And so, you know, I, I would almost consider an administrative postdoc of, okay. of how you learn how to do this. And then, and I guess on the, the pure scientific side of things, um, you, you know, it would probably be um, kind of on the, the, you know, circuit modulation from the, the animal model up to genetic side. Oh, really? Um, simply because it's, it's, there's so much happening there and so many smart people cranking out, you know, I, I bet every week you open a, a, a nature or science yeah. journal, you're going to find at least one optogenetic study in there. And so, you know, it, it, I almost feel like I must be missing something, mm. right? There, there's, there's really important science that's happening there that the scientific community that does more basic stuff is really pumped about, yeah. and and you know I know the human stuff really well, um, but but that's an area where there are very very good people that I think I could learn from to begin to understand. Can you cross this gulf? Is yeah. it possible? And and how would you even begin to approach it? And so I think that would also be really valuable. Super cool. I, lo I love that. I, I'd love to see that you at the you at the bench with mice. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> oh boy! And, and Can't go back to my pipe hitting <laughs> skills. I, I did do mouse research actually. Oh, you did? Yeah. No, I did. Um, I did mouse research as an undergrad at Ohio State, and then I actually worked with um, Tom Woolsey at WashU, who did the the barrel cortex. He discovered oh, yeah. the barrel cortex in mice, and we had a whole set of experiments in in you know imaging the barrel cortex and trying to understand. You know, when you stimulate a whisker, why does blood flow actually go up? And is it trying to wash out bad stuff? And so I, huh. I, I did actually do mouse research before I ever did imaging research. Did not know that. Um, it just didn't take. <laughs> <laughs> Anything you wanted to cover that I did not cover? I covered a lot, I guess. But I think you know me well enough at this point to, uh, to ask all the, uh, the best questions. And now this is, uh, this is a super enjoyable time. And uh, so thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Mike.